after a disappointing betrayal by the men of Keilah, David must endure another betrayal, but not without the comfort of his friend and the protection of God. This is the 50th sermon in the series, Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from 1 Samuel in chapter 23. 1 Samuel in chapter 23, beginning in verse 14, the beginning of the paragraph, verse 14, through to the end of the chapter, verse 29. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And David abode in the wilderness in strongholds, and remained in a mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. But God delivered him not into his hand. And David saw that Saul was come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in wood. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David into the wood and strengthened his hand in God. And he said unto him, Fear not, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find thee, and thou shalt be king over Israel, and I shall be next unto thee. And that also Saul my father knoweth. And they two made a covenant before the Lord, and David abode in the wood, and Jonathan went to his house. Then came up the Sivites to Saul to Gibeah, saying, Doth not David hide himself with us in strongholds in the wood in the hill of Hekalaha, which is on the south of Jeshim? Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of thy soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. And Saul said, Blessed ye of the Lord, for ye have compassion on me. Go, I pray you, prepare yet and know and see his place where his haunt is, and who hath seen him there, for it is told me that he dealeth very subtly. See therefore, and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hideth himself, and come ye again to me with the certainty, and I will go with you, and it shall come to pass, if he be in the land, that I will search him out throughout all the thousands of Judah. And there rose and went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the plain on the south of Jeshimon. Saul also and his men went to seek him. And they told David, Wherefore he came down into a rock and abode in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on this side of the mountain, and David and his men on that side of the mountain. And David made haste to get away for fear of Saul. For Saul and his men compassed David and his men round about to take them. But there came a messenger unto Saul, saying, Haste thee and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Wherefore Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore they called that place Selah Amalekoth. And David went up from thence and dwelt in the strongholds at Englidi. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth of his many trials, 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, beginning in verse 24, not only being betrayed by those without, but also by those of his own countrymen, much like David the king. By inspiration of God, Paul says this, Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once... I was stoned, thrice suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep. 
in journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches, who is weak, and I am not weak, who is offended, and I burn not, if I must needs glory, I will glory in the things which concern mine infirmities. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. In Damascus, the governor under Artus, the king, kept the city of, of the Damocles with a garrison, desirous to apprehend me. And through a window, in a basket, I was let down by the wall and escaped his hand. Thus far is the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel once again declared unto us this morning. Now according to his cunning... David, and he was cunning, very strategic, very tactical. According to his cunning, David now hides himself from Saul and Saul's, what I call Saul's deluded army. Now we can infer from verse 14 that not only was Saul intent on killing David, but his entire army followed after him in order to carry out the dirty deed of murdering an innocent man who is to be the future king of Israel. The scripture states that Saul was hunting David daily. That was his purpose. He had no other purpose but to daily hunt down this man. Which means his army was always by his side, hunting David each and every day without even questioning Saul's motives. And we don't read about that either. Did any of his army question Saul's motives by hunting David? It wasn't only Saul that was determined to kill the future king. It seemed to be his army as well. Notice in David, verse 14, abode in the wilderness and strongholds and remained in a mountain in the wilderness of Ziph and Saul sought him every day, every single day. That was his mission. But God, and there's that phrase, but God, by his great mercy wherewith he loved David, seeks to deliver David. But God delivered him not into the hand of Saul. God was active here, proactive here, intently involved in this entire orchestration of David's life. At this point, Saul must have been severely frustrated that God had not intervened in Saul's life, giving David over to Saul. But now he's intervening in David's life. Remember at one point, Saul in his prideful, narcissistic arrogance thought that God had delivered David into his hand and he was probably smacking his lips and rubbing his hands together and saying, oh, now I've got him, now I've got him. God has blessed me. I'm going to kill God's anointed. That was merely a figment of his imagination because that's what tyrants have, figments of their imagination. And his narcissistic mindset had him thinking that God was on his side, that his cause was just. My killing David is just. Knowing that Saul was so intent upon killing him, 
David moves from place to place in order to frustrate Saul's investigation. Now, there are a number of lessons, two in particular to be gleaned from David's strategy. As we saw last time, moving from place to place in order not to be discovered is a very wise strategy. Once you hide in one place, you're probably at one point or another going to be found out. So hiding in one place only serves as a good strategy for a limited time, but eventually you will be found. But if you're on the move, you're a lot harder to be found. Secondly, the second point is tied to the first. David was not quite sure who to trust. So he was moving here and there. Now, of course, if he knew that an army would stand by him, those of the Ziphites, then he might have stayed, but he wasn't sure who he could trust. When he hid among the people of Keilah, he was betrayed to Saul. So if he was hiding there without moving around, he would have been caught. Moving for David was absolutely necessary. And this may have taught him that staying in one place made him vulnerable to these betrayers. And so David moves from Keilah to Ziph, not knowing whether or not the Ziphites would betray him to Saul. But while hiding in the stronghold among the Ziphites, wonderfully, probably a, a breath of fresh air for, for the future king of Israel, Jonathan breaks away from Saul and joins David. And David saw that Saul was come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a wood. But Jonathan is about to approach him, to comfort him. Now, David, from the beginning, knew, because of Jonathan's intel, David knew from the beginning that Saul, his only desire was to kill him. He was well aware of Saul's intensity to devour him. The Hebrew word here used for Saul seeing David, or the word saw, it says that, and David saw that Saul was come, is actually to be understood as David actually learned. He didn't just see or knew by, he learned that Saul was intent on taking his life, and he was probably mostly from Jonathan. Another rendering of the word saw could also be translated as David was actually understanding it and because he understand exactly the intensity of Saul's hatred for David, he actually feared that Saul was come out to take his life, which puts David in a frame of mind of at least somewhat concerned about his life. Now while trusting God, at the same time he's well concerned that David might find his end with Saul. And this is why it was so important at this time, at this juncture, when everyone was betraying him, when everyone was turning against David, the future king, and turning to Saul, at this point it was so important for Jonathan to come out and encourage David. And this is why Jonathan goes to David. Because he understood that David was troubled. He would come to ease his troubled, fearful mind. And we see this in verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the wood and strengthened his hand in God. That was his purpose. I'm going to go to my brother. I'm going to strengthen him. I see what what trials he's dealing with, what, what betrayal he has to deal with, and I will comfort him. And that is what the brethren do. That is the task of each and every one of us. We find the place where a hurting brother or sister is and we go to them. We go out of our way. We don't sit home in our bubble and say, look, I have a headache. I have a stomach ache. I have this. I have this problem. I have the other problem. So please come to me. No, we find out what people need and we go to them. 
even within our difficulty. And don't think that Jonathan didn't have his difficulties with his old man. And yet he's thinking beyond himself. I find the Christian community has a problem thinking beyond itself. Because they're trapped in this narcissistic bubble. So the Christian community is to be going out of their way to comfort those brethren that are hunted by the enemy of sin, despondency, hopelessness, fearfulness, sickness. But Jonathan goes to David to comfort him because of another reason. David wasn't sitting in a cushy throne somewhere saying, woe is me. He was in the fight. He was in the battle. When we see brothers and sisters in the battle, whether it's in this church or any church or or anyone that we know, we need to comfort them, encourage them. Because when you're really in the battle, you become despondent. You, you, You become like David, fearful, almost without hope. And until a Jonathan comes along and says, Take heart, Christian. You might be well swallowed up by your own your own mind. So Jonathan goes to David, who's in the fight. He makes it his business to see David face to face in order to encourage him so that he would remain steadfast, resolute, tenacious, strengthened against Saul, strengthened in God, because Jonathan knew who David was. Now once there... Notice what Jonathan tells David. He says, don't be afraid. But he tells him much more than that. I mean, it's easy to to say, oh, you should be encouraged. Have a nice day. Go fight him. I'll run for help. That's what usually people say. You you stay in the battle. I've got bigger fish to fry. And and not usually fish in the battle. So so we want to make sure that when we comfort someone, we're comforting those who are really fighting the good fight of faith. So he tells David much more than just don't be afraid. He reveals several realities which help David. Notice verse 17. And he said unto him, he said unto David, fear not. Why would he say that? Because he anticipated David might have been a little bit afraid. Nothing wrong with that. Even God anticipates that sometimes we'll be afraid. But even within our fear, he says don't be afraid. Be courageous. Because only within Fear can you show courage. So he tells David, be courageous, don't be afraid. Notice what he says. Because the hand of Saul my father shall not find thee. Now he knew something. He knew that Saul was not going to... Now how did he know that? I I don't know. Did he have a word from God? Or did he just know that his father was too uh, discombobulated in in his strategies that he would be able to find David? I don't know. But Jonathan knew that Saul was not going to find him. But he knew something else. Notice, and thou shalt be king over Israel. He's saying, look, Saul's not going to find you. Don't be afraid. You're going to be the king. Don't worry about my father who is king now. You're going to be the king and I shall be the next unto thee. And that also Saul, my father, knows. And my father knows you're going to be king. My father knows that I'm going to be next, next unto you. And you shouldn't be afraid because I know all these things. So here it is. He's revealing to David all of these truths in order to strengthen him. So Jonathan doesn't simply tell David not to be afraid. He tells him why. And the first thing he tells him is Saul will not find him. And he was absolutely sure of that fact. He knew this because he knew that it was God's plan 
to ordain and install David as the king of Israel in the place of Saul, Jonathan's father. And so the second thing that Jonathan tells David is that he's going to be the king and, and, and that his loyalty is for David. The third thing. Notice, and I shall be next unto thee. I will be with you. I'm going to stand right by you. I will be there in the fight. So it's not so much that Jonathan said, look, don't be afraid. You'll be king. Have a nice day. See you later. I'll be there. When it comes time, I will have your back. I will bolster you. I will be right there next to you. Jonathan promises to stand at the side of David as his confidant and guide him in the same way that the Spirit of God stood and strengthened the Lord Jesus Christ when he was hunted by the Pharisees, scribes, and lawyers of Adam's race. But sadly for Jonathan, as we shall see later on, this promise is not to be realized. And in this final promise that he will be with him in the fight, Jonathan is mistaken. The Reverend V. Philip Long observes, he says, Jonathan is not entirely correct about how the future will unfold. For instance, he will not live to become David's second, but he has no doubt that David will be king over Israel. Finally, Jonathan reveals something that David may or not have known. Jonathan tells David that Saul knows for a fact that David shall be king and Jonathan will support him. Now, maybe David didn't know that Saul knew. But he says, Saul knows. This is why he's so intent on killing you. The Reverend Long adds this. He says, Jonathan's declaration that even Saul knows that David will be king leaves Saul without excuse in his desperate attempt to stay on the throne by eliminating his divinely chosen replacement. Having revealed these things to David so that David is strengthened and encouraged in this trial, Jonathan then renews his covenant with David. And they too made a covenant before the Lord, verse 18, and David abode in the wood and Jonathan went to his house. Now while this was all going on, the Ziphites hatch a plan to betray David. Now whatever they were thinking, they were going to betray God's future king. And once again we see the wickedness of men and the fearfulness of men, supposedly Hebrew brethren conspiring together against God's anointed. And when David penned Psalm 2, he might have been even remembering the many conspiracies and the betrayals that the kings of the earth had against the Christ that he had to overcome. Because David had to face many, many adversities. So once David entered into the wilderness the Ziphites contact Saul. They, they waste no time because they're fearful of Saul. They're fearful of the army. So if we appease the tyrant, maybe the tyrant will leave us alone. So the Ziphites contact Saul, effectively making an alliance with Saul the murderer for the destruction of the innocent future king of Israel. And from this it is obvious that even wicked Saul is not without his supporters. Verse 19 and 20. Then came up the Ziphites to Saul, to Gibeah. They go out of their way. They go to Saul and Gibeah, saying, Doth not David hide himself with us in a stronghold in the wood, in the hill, which is on the south side of Jeshurun? Therefore, O king, notice, O king, you're our king, you're our king, tyrant king, you're ours. 
Come down according to all thy desire and we'll deliver him. Now one might ask then the question, what compelled Saul's army, the army, not not the Zivites, but the army, what compelled Saul's army to follow him, to continuously follow him so loyally. And obviously, yes, they, they didn't want to fall on the priest, but they don't, want to, they don't mind falling on David. Why were they so loyal? Even in the face of the fact that it was David that delivered Israel, remember way back, the shepherd boy delivers Israel from the Philistines in the first place by killing Goliath. Why be loyal to Saul and not David? You see, Saul had killed his thousands, but David, his ten thousands. Why not think out of the box a little bit and, and ask the question, well, wait a minute, what are we doing here? The second question is, and even perhaps more astounding, is what made the Ziphite so loyal to Saul as to betray David to him? To put it another way, why were these alliances so strong between Saul and his army and the Ziphites and Saul that each would turn a blind eye to the reality of the situation, not even asking the question, why does Saul want David dead? Because it's not the what is the man doing, it's the why is he doing it? Why is... Saul desiring dominion over Israel when he has no right to it. Now in order to discover the reason, we have to look at the nature of alliances. So let's consider what is an alliance because that's what's happening. The army is aligning itself with wicked Saul. The Ziphites are aligning themselves with wicked Saul. The people of Keilah are aligning themselves with wicked Saul. Why? What is an alliance? Well, according to Stephen Walt of the United States Naval College, an alliance is, quote, a formal or informal commitment for security cooperation between two or more states, or in Saul's case, entities, his official position as king, his army, and the Ziphites. They are making a confederacy. They are an alliance together. And it seems as if these groups held to a commitment to Saul as a result of of their need to be secure, or at least to feel secure. So the Ziphites and Saul's army, they craft this alliance for their security. They need to be secure. Their need to, if they weren't actually secure, at least to feel secure. Sort of like, sort of like NATO. That's an alliance. And everybody feels so secure. But is that the reality? Will NATO really step up when the need arises? So it may not be an actual security, but it's the need for security so that we feel secure because if we feel secure, then we believe that we are secure. So both Saul's army and the Ziphites wanted a guaranteed security that they thought only a federation with Saul could give. Now they were grossly mistaken. But that's why they're making these alliances. Walt is saying that one major reason why various nations or groups forge alliances, they do so for the purpose of security. And for that security, they will comply with anything that is commanded or mandated by the existing power that is forging that original alliance. David's army was so small, 600 men only, where Saul's was quite large. And this, of course, was a major attraction to the Ziphites. To go against Saul's larger army, knowing what Saul is capable of doing, if we don't give up David, 
Saul's army is going to come against us and kill us all. So to go against Saul's larger army in favor of David's smaller army of only 600 men was something that could not be even considered if security was to be guaranteed. It was therefore in the best interest of Saul's army and the people of Ziph to commit themselves to his cause rather than David's, even though Saul's cause was wicked. So they're giving up righteousness for security. And it was therefore in the best interest of Saul's army and the people of Ziph to commit themselves to Saul. Saul's army was combining their forces with the forces of Saul's position as king, whereas the Ziphites were confederating with Saul and his army so as to be secure against the Philistines if they should attack in the future. Because at this point in history, everybody's afraid of the Philistines. And yet the one man who defeated the Philistines single-handedly, they want to kill. An alliance with Saul would further both of their interests. Let's galvanize together so that if if the Philistines attack, we'll be ready. In this way, these alliances commit themselves to Saul on both an offensive and a defensive plateau. They wanted both offensive security and defensive security. Walt again explains... The primary purpose of most alliances is to combine the members' capabilities in a way that furthers their respective interests. An alliance may be either offensive or defensive. For example, intended either to provide the means for an attack or some third party or intended as a mutual guarantee in the event of another state or nation's attack on one of the alliance members. So in this way, these alliance commitments to Saul were both defensive and offensive. And we have to remember that the Philistine nation was a constant threat, always in in the background. If there was to be any security, one had to join together with Saul in order to be secure against their sworn enemy. What they missed was, while Saul had the great army, David had God, the man of war. Now, since alliances are forged as a response to an external threat, Saul's army had to remain loyal, which the Ziphites recognized, obviously, and therefore sought to faithfully join forces with the authority of the crown in order to balance Israel's strength with that of the Philistine nation. An alliance with Saul proved for them that they could be provided with that security. And in order to keep that intact, they would obey him in, in his murderous quest against David, who at this time could provide no security. At this point, David could provide no security against the Philistine nation. Very pragmatic, very calculated. Saul's alliance with his own army and with that of the Ziphites was one of offense and defense, which made these alliances very unique. Defensively, these two groups focused on the Philistines. Offensively, its focus, in order to maintain this federation, its focus was upon David to kill David. What made this alliance so distinct, it was both strong and fragile at the same time. See, one would think this alliance is really strong. No, it was both strong and fragile. Offensive alliances are more fragile because once the enemy is vanquished, the need for an alliance might deteriorate. On the other hand, as long as the alliance is based defensively, as long as a threat or even a perceived threat exists, the alliance remains intact. This is why nations like to give the ongoing perception that there is a threat against the homeland. 
because it galvanizes the people. This forces the people into a willingness to be for the security of the state, to support the state for their security against a real or a perceived threat. And that threat can be coming upon the people in any form. A pandemic. We have to get together with the state so that we feel secure. A terrorist threat from either abroad or internally, an economic threat, a military threat, a political threat, an ideological threat, a religious threat. Oh, those Bible-thumping Christians holding on to their Bibles and their guns. They're a threat. We have to galvanize behind the state. Think about every time there's a war, the Constitution of the United States is no longer enforced. It's the War Powers Act. So we've had the war on poverty, the war on drugs, the war on terror, the war on pandemics, all telegraphing that there's a real threat to the nation of which the state must deal with for the safety and security of the people. So let's just make sure that we suspend all rights to be secure. Give up your liberty and we'll make you safe. And once there is the declaration of a threat, the state can wield unlimited power due to a fearful population that thirsts for security rather than liberty. Scripture does not forbid, however, making alliances as long as they are not ungodly alliances. One prominent ungodly alliance made by Christians is with the government's school system. Another concerns itself with business partnerships with unbelievers. This does not mean that you shouldn't work for non-believers. Most of us have to work for non-believers. The Bible clearly allows for Christians to work for non-believers. The prohibition is making a partnership, an alliance with a pagan. Another ungodly alliance, one which is explicitly forbidden, is within the marriage covenant. Believers are not to marry unbelievers, period, the end. That's it. Paul warns this in 1 Corinthians 7.39. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth, but if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. In fact, Paul's warning is a general warning against being yoked with unbelievers in any way whatsoever. And that goes for the government schools. Because what the government schools are doing, which Christian parents who have their children in those schools don't understand is that the schools are stealing the future. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 6.14 and following, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? And what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and my daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Clearer words cannot be spoken. And yet when we don't understand the nature of an alliance, or what alliances mean in Scripture, or what God says about alliances, we might miss the practicality of these statements the, the Apostle Paul is speaking. 
So if we are to make any kind of alliance, it must be for a common cause which is biblical in principle and it should only be for a limited time until the objective is reached. Verse 20 gives us further insight as to the character of the Ziphites. They too were murderous in their hearts. Notice verse 20, Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of thy soul. And they knew exactly what Saul wanted. He wanted blood. Come down and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand because they knew that that king was going to execute that man. But they didn't care. Now hearing this, Saul, wicked Saul, blesses their wickedness by blessing them. But note his narcissistic response. Verse 21. And Saul said, Blessed be ye of the Lord, you murderous, betraying, reprobate miscreants. Blessed be ye of the Lord. So like in the South, every time somebody hates your guts, they say, Oh, bless you. Bless your heart. Blessed be ye of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. It's all about me. Saul was all about himself. Now, Saul then commissions the betrayers in verse 22 and 3. Go, I pray you, prepare yet, and know and see his place, where his haunt is, where he's hiding, and who hath seen him there, for it is told me that he deals very subtly. See therefore and take knowledge of all his lurking places, where he hides, and you come and tell me exactly where he is, and I'll go to him, and I'll come to pass. If he's in the land, I'll search him out, and I'll go compass land and sea throughout all the thousands of Judah. So he wants these Ziphites to do his dirty work. But David was already on the move. And they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the plain on the south of Jeshimon. Now note how David is going from place to place. There it is. He's moving around, frustrating Saul, place to place. However, this time... David is cornered. If you if you got the text, if you understood the situation here, David, while he's moving around this mountain, he's cornered. This was it. This was this was curtains. He's cornered at the mountain which was in that wilderness. Notice verse twenty five and six. Saul also and his men went to seek him. And they told David whereof he came down on a rock and abode in the wilderness. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David. And Saul went on this side of the mountain, and David and his men on that side of the mountain. See, they were, they were going around the mountain. They were right, right on each other's heels. But David made haste to get away for fear of Saul. For Saul and his men compassed David and his men round about to take them notice. All of a sudden, David's going around the mountain one way, Saul's going around the mountain the other way, and all of a sudden, whatever, however it happened, David is cornered to the right. Saul's men to the left, Saul's men, and David couldn't escape. That was it. It was, it was curtains. Think about that situation. David knows that once he's captured, now that he's been surrounded, Saul will absolutely kill him. That's a given, and that's what he knows. In the humanity of David, he might have been terrified Brought even to despair, even though Jonathan said, don't you worry, don't you worry, don't you worry. But here it is. Here's the reality. Here's the reality. I am cornered. I am surrounded. The humanity of David might have brought him to both terror and despair that he would be killed, never really contemplating the promise of God through Samuel and then reiterated through Jonathan. That is why we need to remember the promises of God. 
That's why we need to focus upon the promises of God. Whether the mountains are removed, whether there's war in the streets, whatever it might be, we remember the promises of God. That was the case with David. He wouldn't be swallowed up by his fear. While in his flesh, he might have been fearful, he might have found himself in the throes of despair and discouragement, and yet he strengthened himself in God. That's the key. You strengthen yourself in God. When I am afraid, I will trust in thee. That is what a man of faith does. When all seems lost and death is near, the faithful strengthen themselves in God. And this is what David was learning, which only experience could teach. And so he writes in Psalm 27, 14 and Psalm 31, 24, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all ye that hope in the Lord. Here's a man who's going to be killed. Enemies on the right, enemies on the left. Saul's hatred now overflowing. The wrath of Saul coming down upon him. And he strengthens himself in God. Whether he would live or whether he would die, he's strengthening himself in God. And as David waits upon the Lord for the outcome of God's providence in his life, because David knew something else, God is orchestrating everything of David's life. You know, God is orchestrating your life. Everything in your life is orchestrated by God. Your birth, your life, and the day of your death. All orchestrated. All orchestrated by the hand of God. David understood that. That's why he was able to strengthen himself. So he waits upon the Lord for the outcome of God's providence. And while he waits, he musters up his courage, hoping in God for whatever he wills for his life. Maybe maybe he thought Saul would, would come upon him and see David and say, Oh, my son David, as he did before. But there is yet something else that David learns. While he was awaiting his fate before Saul, and knowing that God had brought him to this time and place, he brought back all of the providence in the past that God had done for his people and the promises that God had given to his life, his life's purpose. He remembered Samuel's words. He remembered Jonathan's words. He maybe even remembered at this time that while Joshua was fighting the Philistines and the wicked of the world, that God was with him mightily. When Moses was fighting, when the people of Israel were fighting, how God destroyed the enemy, that, that how, how God would destroy Pharaoh. Maybe he was remembering, God is faithful, God is consistent, I will trust in the Lord. Ethan the Ezraite describes David's and all of God's people's remedy when they're in deep heaviness. Psalm 119, verse 28. My soul, and this is David writing, my soul melteth for heaviness. Strengthen thou me according to thy word. Now the only way we are strengthened is according to the word of God. We, we bathe ourselves in the promises of God. So whenever we're in dire straits, we are to trust God, we are to trust the Lord, and we are to remember the promises of God, which is the key to our hearts being strengthened and our faith and our hope being secure. This is why it's important for you to read the Bible, read the promises. Nahum counsels, he says this, in one seven, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. 
and he knoweth them that trust him. So while David might have been struggling with fear, apprehension, despair, perhaps even doubt, it didn't really matter what was happening around him. He still looked to God. And he still trusted God in the time of his distress. And I am sure his words to his Redeemer were, not not my will, O Lord, deliver me here, but, but thy will be done. If you want me dead, I'm yours. Have you ever said that? Have you ever really thought that? Lord, if you take me, you know, sometimes as you get older, you know, you have a pain here. It could be a muscle spasm, but you think, this is it. How do you deal with it? 911? Now, Lord, if it, thy will, thy will be done. David knew that his heart were, was in the hand of God. He knew that his life was God's. It wasn't his own. I think we need to come to that reality that we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to the Lord. But just in the nick of time, while David is strengthening himself in God, just in the nick of time, when everything looked like the end had come and the darkness had come upon David and his army, where David would be assassinated by the tyrant king, just in the nick of time, a messenger appears with urgent news. Verse 27, But there came a messenger unto Saul. See, God had already planned that because that guy was already traveling to see Saul. He's already orchestrating all things. God was already orchestrating all things. There comes a messenger unto Saul saying, Haste thee and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Adam Clark comments, he says, See the providence of God exerted for the salvation of David's life. In other words, he's saying, Look at what God has done. David and his men are almost surrounded by Saul and his army and on the point of being taken when a messenger arrives and informs Saul that the Philistines have invaded the land. But behold the workings of providence. God had already prepared the invasion of the land by the Philistines and kept Saul ignorant how much David was in his power. But as his advanced guards and scouts must have discovered him in a very short time, the messenger arrives just at the point of time to prevent it. Here David was delivered by God and in such a manner too as rendered the divine interposition visible. So a messenger comes. God had been working this all out. The, the working it out before David even went to the, to the mountain. He worked out the situation precisely so that through the darkness of David's trial he would lean on God, trust in God even more than he had already had and that was his grooming. He was now being groomed that even when the darkness was coming upon him he was being groomed for leadership he would stand fast in the faith that he had in Christ and God, he would watch God deliver him and God would deliver him. But this trial was to groom him. This providence, while it was a blessing for David it was a curse for Saul. And it must have infuriated him. Could you imagine? He's got David in his sights. He's in his grasp. He maybe could even see him. And the messenger comes. And he says, wait a minute. Hold it. Haste now. Philistines have invaded. Now knowing the nature of the narcissist, he just didn't go, ah, shucks. He probably stamped his feet. He probably screamed vulgarities, cursed God. He probably did all of these things. We don't read about it, but I would just surmise. He was infuriated. And it put him in a very precarious situation, very difficult. 
Because if he failed to, to leave off his pursuit of David to defend Israel against the Philistines, the alliance that was forged, because that's what they were afraid of, the Ziphites and Kilah, they were all afraid that we have to form this alliance because the Philistines always are attacking. If he didn't go and fight the Philistines, that alliance that was forged might have dissolved, seeing it was formed on the basis of national security, and there wasn't any national security. So he's in a, in a pretty, pretty difficult predicament. If he continued after David and refused to defend against the Philistines, he might have lost, he probably would have lost all credibility, jeopardizing his alliance with these betraying nations as well as his own army. Walt again explains why declining credibility can be disastrous to alliances. We see this played out in our own America. He says this, because alliances are formed primarily to increase their member security, anything that casts doubt on their ability to contribute to this goal will encourage members to reevaluate their position, even if the level of threat is unchanged. An alliance will become more fragile if its members begin to doubt that the existing arrangements are sufficient to guarantee their security. Alliances deteriorate and or dissolve if the members begin to question either the capacity or the willingness of their partners to fulfill their obligation. We see this being played out today. This is happening as we speak. If Saul continued to pursue David, in light of the Philistine threat, he would have been viewed as redefining the objective of the alliance, which in turn would have derailed the entire credibility of Saul, and he could no longer then claim he would defend against the threatening Philistines. So, in the nick of time, he is forced to respond to the message that the Philistines had spread themselves across the land in an invasion attempt. Knowing this, Saul turns to face Israel's enemy in verse 28. Now the name of the place where Saul left off pursuing David means the rock of divisions. Sila Amah Lekoeth. The Rock of Divisions. Adam Clark explains why that place might be named such. He says, because the heart of the king was divided to go hither and thither. Here Saul was obliged to separate himself from David in order to go and oppose the invading Philistines. So seeing the hand of God in his deliverance, David wastes no time in escaping to the strongholds at Engledi. In the same way that God delivered Paul from the tyranny of the governor of Damascus by opening up a window of opportunity, so does David escape from the clutches and the tyranny of Saul. We shall continue to map out David's exploits in light of Saul's rampage when we continue in our exposition of the first book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.